This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP. Thanks for joining me. I do appreciate your time listening to this show. And today, it's a pleasure to bring on Daniel Huppert from the Australian Sovereignty Party. He'll be joining me in just a few minutes. This is the fourth episode for the 2016 AHP federal election special, uh, where we're bringing you all the pro-gun parties that are going to be running at the election. Now, Daniel will be running as an independent and not for ASP at the election. Uh, If you listen to the show, you will find out the reasons for that. We talk about ASP policy. We talk about their core ideology, their core philosophy, what they would push for in Parliament, given if they get an opportunity uh, at the table by gaining a seat in Parliament at this next 2016 federal election. Uh, Of course, if you want to find out more about the Australian Hunting Podcast, Visit our website, australianhuntingpodcast.com.au, our Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash ahpodcast. Of course, join us on Facebook. We're getting close to about 15,000 people now on Facebook, which is absolutely fantastic. Come and share your photos. Come and share your thoughts, interests, and opinions. We greatly appreciate that. Uh, And again, if you want to be part of the Straight Shooting Show, just keep an eye on that Facebook page because we will be putting up posts about how you can actually ring in and join us live on the show. Or if you want to be live, you can click on that uh, voice voicemail icon on the website right hand side near the widget bar the slider bar and you can send us a three minute audio which will play on our straight shooting podcast of course you can listen to us on the website you can listen to us on itunes but that's not why you're here today because you're here to hear from daniel huppert from the australian sovereignty party so without further ado let's get into my interview with daniel huppert from the australian sovereignty party This is Rob Fickling from Beyond the Divide and Maroka 30, and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. All right, Daniel Huppert, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for joining me on the show to have a chat about the Australian Sovereignty Party, I guess politics and firearms in general. Thanks. Great to talk to you, Jason. Let's fire away. No worries, mate. Tell us, I want to find out about yourself first, um, people that don't know who you are. Give us a bit of a background of your history, personal history, uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, okay, mate. I've been, uh, I've been delving in politics for the last sort of 15 years of my life. I actually ran as a candidate with the Christian Democratic Party uh, going back about 15 years ago, and uh, I was quite heavily involved with them. But uh, for various reasons, I actually left them um, when Fred Nile and Fred Nile. I've got a lot of respect for him, uh, New South Wales Senator Fred Nile, who's actually the longest-serving uh, um, uh, politician in Australia. But he was um, putting forward some legislation to uh, increase uh, pe- uh, penalties on people caught carrying knives around on the street, and I opposed him on that, um, and uh, and uh, couldn't couldn't seem to uh, reason with him on that. So for, for that and some other reasons, I actually ended up leaving the Christian Democratic Party and. Um, some years later, uh, of course, I helped to found uh, the Australian Sovereignty Party. Uh, so we, we uh, the Australian Sovereignty Party was very much a, uh, initially a very an anti-globalist uh, political party. Uh, we were very concerned about the erosion of our sovereignty 
and uh, the politicians selling out uh, this nation to uh, offshore entities, uh, the United Nations, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, all these kinds of treaties that you see at the moment, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, all of these things, the Lima Agreement, going back almost 30 years ago, all of these things have sold off our sovereignty and sold off our jobs overseas. And so these are the sort of major things that I was concerned uh, with and um, and the, the kinds of things that I was trying to expose. Uh, but, um, but for myself personally, I'm someone who just hasn't stopped researching and studying for the last uh, 15 years of my life. Um, not a day goes by when I'm not uh, reading a book or articles or um, uh, uh, listening to um, uh, podcasts with uh, international uh, economists, all sorts of things. And um, so just constantly building uh, on my understanding on a broad range of subjects. And, and I think the more you understand about a broad range of issues, whether it be economics or, or uh, human anthropology or whether it be on... Um, <clears throat> On, uh, on, on health or so many different other, uh, other subjects, the more you're able to see a much bigger picture of everything going on in the world and the more, uh, I think, intelligently you're able to put together policies. Uh, and so I think that's what we've really done with the Australian Sovereignty Party. Uh, most people who go to our website and actually spend the time to read our policies, uh, basically they get hooked. They, they, they say, gee, these are the best uh, policies that we've, we've ever seen. And uh, so we're very, very proud of that. Now, uh, obviously, as, as, as president of the Australian Sovereignty Party, I have actually temporarily stood down so that I can concentrate on running my campaign as an independent candidate to the federal seat of Aston, which is out in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, the reason why I'm running as an independent is because, uh, unfortunately, our party missed out on uh, running this election uh, by two days. Two days. Uh, no so good then, two days, not good at all. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a bugger of a situation, but we do the best with what we've got, and so we're running our candidates as independents. Um, it's not such a bad thing, in fact, because... So as an independent, because because during my role as the Australian Sovereignty Party president, I've been in communication with the leaders of most of the other minor parties, and, and so they all know me, they know who I am, they know what I stand for, they know my character... And uh, that's why basically none of the other minor parties are actually going to be running uh, a candidate in this seat against me uh, because they're basically going to be directing their members and supporters and just say, hey, look, if you're out in the seat at the electorate of Aston, vote for Daniel Independent because we know and we trust and we know what he's about. Uh, so basically, and this might, be, this might be a bit of a first in Australian politics, but as an independent, I'm basically supported and kind of endorsed by about a dozen other minor parties. Uh, which is a very unique position to be in. So I dare say I'm going to give uh, the uh, the sitting Liberal incumbent a bit of a run for his money. Um, so we're, we're hoping to send him a strong message uh, that uh, you know the Australian people have quite had had quite enough of this uh, duopoly system, Liberal Labor, and the Greens are basically little more than an appendix to uh, the uh, duopoly party. So uh, they've sort of made themselves irrelevant as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, with any luck and God willing, um, I might actually uh, win this election and uh, be able to uh, stand up for sovereignty and freedom in Parliament. Fantastic, mate. Interesting. People talk about sovereignty, and I ask this question of the Australian Liberty Alliance about liberty. What does sovereignty mean to you? All right. Well, sovereignty, first of all, this has got nothing to do with having any sort of love for the, uh, uh, the British monarch. <laughs> Just let me make that clear. Uh, sovereignty has got to do, in a sense, with independence, okay? We are not a sovereign country 
if our education policy is being dictated by the United Nations. We're not a sovereign uh, country if our monetary policy or tax policies are being largely dictated to us by the International Monetary Fund. We are not a sovereign country if we are party to these treaties that are selling out our jobs overseas, that are giving multinational corporations and the bankers more power than the government itself over the private uh, or over the uh, sovereign citizens of Australia. It's disgusting. We need to have Australians in Parliament governing for the best interest of the Australian people and not for offshore, unelected bureaucrats or entities or bankers or corporations. And I've had enough. And that's what sovereignty is about on a national level. So it's about national sovereignty. There's a lot of other things that comes into that. For example, if we can't grow our own food in this country, we're not a sovereign country. If we can't produce our own um, uh, uh, weapons and, and, and ammunition in this country and relying on, on corrupt foreign nations to supply us with our military arms, we're not a sovereign country. In fact, if we're having to rely on, on corrupt foreign nations for the defence of this country, we are not a sovereign country. All right? Now, this also comes down into individual sovereignty. It's very much uh, rest upon... So I'm a very strong libertarian, okay? And I, th I don't think we have individual sovereignty when we have this mountain load of uh, bureaucracy and regulations and big brother nanny state control over us as individuals. Uh, we need to basically... I've got a very strong philosophy that I've tried to imbue into all of the Australian Sovereignty Party policies. And this philosophy is it's better to educate than it is to regulate. If an issue can be dealt with through educating the public and enlightening the public, better to use that route than it is to use regulation and controls. Okay? So national sovereignty and individual sovereignty. Mm, very good, mate. What areas, like in Parliament, obviously, if you guys were, were elected, what I mean, what's your main, even right now, before the election, what's your main areas of focus in regards to policies that are really sort of, you know, up there on your list? Okay, well, that's quite easy. We are very clearly, amongst all the other minor parties, have the strongest economic credentials. Now, it's all very well and good to run around talking about Islam and all these other issues, but the thing is, the Australian people, by and large, aren't going to take you seriously. Yeah, you'll get a number of votes, but... At the end of the day, the average Australian, what they're concerned about is their hip pocket. They're concerned about their wallet. They're concerned about having enough money to be able to pay the bills and to live a decent life. That's what they're concerned about. And that's why, ultimately, when the Australian people uh, begin to be exposed to our economic policies, uh, that's why I believe that the Australian Sovereignty Party has a very, very strong uh, future. Now, these economic policies rest upon our tax and our monetary policy. The tax policy you may have been exposed to before because it's, um, it's uh, based on the 2% uh, debit tax model. Now, other parties have come out with this in the past. Unfortunately, for example, Pauline Hanson came out with it in '98, and the media lamb blasted her about it. And unfortunately, uh, Pauline Hanson, I mean, I love her, but she had no understanding of the policy. Right? She was not a good advocate of it. And I, this is one of the things I've been in communication with the leaders of the other minor parties and said, look, if you're going to come out with a similar policy, if the media start questioning question you on it, please refer them to me because I know what I'm talking about on these issues and what we don't need is people out there spoiling it for the rest of everyone, for everyone else because they don't know what they're talking about. So basically, in short, I'll wrap this up. 
Uh, last financial year, it took over 125 different federal, state, local and council taxes, fees, levies uh, to, to bring in uh, approximately $410 billion in revenue. Now, last financial year, there was about $51 trillion that was processed through the electronic payments system. <clears throat> so every time you swipe your card, debit, check, savings, no matter what it is, Every time you do a direct bank transfer, every time your boss pays you your wage, that's, a, that's an electronic transfer. Basically, any electronic transference of money from one person to another or from one company to a person or from between companies or banks, $51 trillion worth. Now, if you came into every single one of those electronic transactions with a 2% transaction tax, I'll tell you what's going to happen. All right? Now, first of all, we, what we do know is roughly about $13 trillion of those transactions are actually bankers engaging in speculative marginal currency trades. So that's when a bank might spend, might buy and sell international currency dozens or even, even, even hundreds of times a day, taking advantage of tiny little fluctuations up and down. Now, of course, if you're applying a 2% transaction tax, they're just simply not going to do that anymore. So what we do know is that we're looking at a figure of approximately $38 trillion of transactions. Now, Jason, do you know what 2% of $38 trillion is? A lot of money. <laughs> it's, about, it's about $750 billion is what our modelling shows. We'll be able to bring in through this 2% transaction tax. Now, that means we can abolish every single other tax in Australia. No more income tax, no more company tax, no more GST, no more council rates, no more vehicle registration costs, no more. All gone. The only taxes we would keep would be import duties, and I'm not going to apologise for that. It's about protecting Australian jobs. But every other tax, gone. No more tax returns, no more BAS statements, no more paperwork, no more compliance, no more having to pay accountants every year. <laughs> I apologise. How, how does that go uh, in... Um, sorry, I've got to ask that question. How does that go again about wiping out business like tax accountants, taxation? Um, you, know, uh, you, you, know, you go to accountancy, I mean, that'd wipe out accountants overnight, wouldn't it? Or? Well, look, here's, here's the thing, right? Are we going to withhold such an incredible taxation system for the sake of a few uh, accountants and their jobs? I think not. And, and, and here's the thing, right? When you implement this kind of policy, I'll tell you what happens. First of all, the average punter out there, they're not paying income tax. Uh, they've got a lot more uh, money to spend, and, and that's what they do. They tend to go and spend more money. Right? When you've got more free money, you spend uh, free money in your pocket, you go and spend it. You buy new TVs, new cars, building a decking out the back, going on holidays more often, going out, taking your family out for dinner. So people are spending more. And so businesses say, gee, this is great. Everyone's cashed up. They're buying more of my goods and services. Mate, I might actually have to put on an extra employee to deal with all the extra business I'm getting. And so we're creating a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs. Manufacturers start saying, gee, let's, let's actually, we might actually go and manufacture our stuff in Australia now because we don't have to pay all these ridiculous taxes and red tape and all the bureaucracy. It becomes a lot more competitive. Uh, and so, once again, we're creating... Uh, a lot more jobs. And um, in fact, around monetary policy, which I'll explain briefly, we're going to be probably employing upwards of 100,000 people a year building infrastructure. You're creating jobs. Basically, this kind of a taxation system uh, creates so much stimulus for the economy, you're literally going to have 100% employment. So, yes, okay, accountants, they're going to lose their jobs, most of them, uh, doing accounting work. But I dare say, they'll be able to go and step into another job the next day because that's how many new jobs we're talking about creating here under this kind of system. So um, 
So that's how we deal uh, with that issue. So let's let's not anyone bring that up as an issue because it's a non-issue. Yes, you lose some jobs, but we're creating a hell of a lot more. Yeah, okay, sounds good. Um, tell us about uh, who, who else is involved in ASP. Uh, are you going to be running candidates right around Australia? I mean, is this independence now? Are they all going to be independents? Are they contesting any other seats? Or give us a bit of a rundown. Yeah, so we do have a number of uh, uh, candidates running in the lower house specifically in various seats around the country. So myself, I'm running for the seat of Aston, which is a eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, we've got uh, Mark Aldridge, uh, and uh, many of you will know that name. He's uh, quite well known over in South Australia. He's running for the seat of Macon, which is just northwest of uh, Adelaide. We've got Sandy Turner. Um, he's uh, running for the seat of Blair out uh, west of um, Brisbane. And uh, we've got Richard Foley, he's the party secretary. He's running for the seat of Riverina. And we may have Dr. Rex Japanunka. Uh, a very senior Indigenous uh, elder who may be running for the seat of Lingiari, which is basically the entire Northern Territory minus Darwin. It's that time of year again, and Huntfest is just around the corner. Huntfest is Naruma's premier hunting exhibition on the New South Wales South Coast. Huntfest is on this June long weekend, so don't miss out by getting your tickets early. If you want to be an exhibitor at Huntfest, then call Danfield on 02-4473-7035. Visit huntfest.com.au for more information. Huntfest, the place to be in 2016. Do you have dull, blunt or badly sharpened knives that couldn't skin a cat? At Scary Sharp, we use a multi-step grinding system and will hand sharpen your blades to a precise edge. Our process of sharpening knives will have your blade splitting hairs for a surprisingly low cost. Not only do we sharpen knives, but we also sharpen scissors, clippers, garden tools, arrowheads, axes or anything that holds an edge. We are located close to Canberra and we also have a mail-in service. Visit Scary Sharp on Facebook or call Bob on 0410 432 852 and find out how we can meet your sharpening needs. Scary sharp. If it cuts, we can sharpen it. Mate, um, let's say you know either yourself or someone was to get you know one of the people of your party was to get into uh, you know a Senate seat for an example. I mean, can we rule out? I did ask David Lionhill this question quite some time ago. You know, if it's against you know party philosophy or core ideology, would you vote to get something up for say ASP as an independent if you had to form an alliance with the Greens, for an example? I would not form an alliance with the Greens. Um, this is what I would do, okay? Now, this is something I've been in communication with, uh, again, the leaders of the other parties, um, a lot of the other candidates themselves uh, for other parties I've been speaking to. And uh, see, at the moment, you've got about, you've got four independent minor party uh, representatives in the, ha- in the House of Reps. This election, polling shows... We may very well like to have 15 or 20 minor party or independents in the House of Representatives, which would be fantastic. Now, if that's the case, neither Liberal or the Labor Party will be able to form a government in their own right. Now, I've been speaking to these, uh, again, these other candidates, and I've been saying, look, this is what we're going to do, all right? No mucking around here, all right? 
Once the, once the, uh, we've uh, had the counts come in from the election and we know who's elected, I'm going to be speaking, I'm going to be calling them all up and I'm going to speak to them and say, look, we're all meeting up in Canberra, we're all having a meet, meeting together, we're going to sit around a round table and we're going to decide on a few very core issues that we all agree on because we do have a lot of commonality, right? And uh, we're going to agree to work together as a minor party, an independent associated bloc, right? Now... If the Liberal and Labor Party want to be able to form a government, they'll have no choice but to take all of us or none of us. And if they want all of us, these will be our demand. Right? We're the ones putting forward the demands, not them. And if they don't want to do it, if they don't want to form a, a, a coalition government with us, then they've got a number of choices. Uh, they might call for a snap second election, and if they do, I think that'll be their death knell because uh, the Australian people will... I think voting even more independence and minor parties if they do that. So I think they will have to take us, and, and this is the really realistically the only way we're going to be able to get forward the kind of legislation that's going to be able to make a big difference in this country. All right, the worst thing would be for us independence and minor parties to be split up amongst the Liberal and the Labor Party. All right, therefore nothing will get done, nothing will change. All right, so we need to be a little bit pragmatic about this. Right, so that's that's going to be my strategy going into this, and I've already got agreement from a, a number of the other uh, minor party or independent candidates um, who stand a good chance of being elected. That this is what we're going to do. Yeah, good stuff, mate. Given yourself or one of the other ASP or independents win a Senate seat, give me say the top two or three things you would push for in Parliament. What would be the top, yeah, you know, the top two or three on your list? Okay, so first of all, none of us are running for the Senate. We're all running for the uh, House of Representatives. Sorry, of course, my apologies. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, look, that's where government's formed, and uh, that's where I want to be because I certainly want to take the gloves off and blast away at Malcolm Turnbull, the traitor, and the rest of them. All right? That's where I want to be. Now, um, okay, so I've already told you about the tax policy. That's, that's, uh, that's definitely paramount. The second thing, and pro- actually it would probably be the primary thing that I would push for would be uh, my monetary policy. Now, this is something that none of the other parties have considered. The monetary policy, this is very, very powerful, okay? Now, I'll explain this to you really quickly. Right now, as of today, we have about $1.9 trillion of Australian money in circulation, okay? Now, that's uh, 97% of that money is digital, of course, there's only about $70 billion of actual physical notes and coins in circulation. The rest of it's all, all digital. Now, um, back in 2005, there was only about $800 billion per head, uh, sorry, of, of Australian money in circulation. So uh, the Australian money supply, known as the broad money supply, has grown by over a trillion dollars in the last decade. So we're talking about $100 billion of new money being added into our economy every single year. Right? Now, the federal government through the Treasury only creates roughly about two, maybe $2.5 billion of new physical notes and coins every year. So where's the rest of this money coming from? Where's all this other 98-odd trillion dollars of new Australian money coming into circulation? Where is it coming from? Most people don't know, of course. I'll tell you where it's coming from. It's coming from private banking. And the way it works, okay, this is very, very, very critical for you and your listeners to understand because this is so important. If you go to a bank, 
You want to borrow $500,000 to, 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 to buy a house, for example, okay? So you go into the bank and you sign a loan contract or a mortgage agreement, and basically you sign, okay, I, Jason Selms, promise to pay back $500,000 uh, plus interest and fees over a 25-year period. That's, that's basically what the loan contract says, right? Yep. Now, the banks take that piece of money. Uh, sorry, the, the, bank take, the banks take that, that, that piece of paper that you signed, that you gave to them, it's called a promissory note. Makes sense? Because you're promising to pay them this money. So it's called a promissory note. And they take this promissory note and they write it up on their ledgers as an asset worth $500,000 to the banks. Well done, Jason Selms. You just gave the private banks an asset worth $500,000. Now, they then, on the other side of the ledger, they then literally create $500,000 of digital money out of thin air and lend it to you at interest. The private banks are not lending you money that depositors have legitimately to go and deposit in the bank and then they're lending it back out to you. That's not what they're doing. They are creating this money out of thin air backed up by this promissory note which you gave them. Now, here's the deal. When you pay back your loan every month, your loan is comprised of principal and interest. Now, as the banks receive the principal portion of that loan, they then wipe out that money. Because they create it out of thin air, they have to send it back in into thin air. However, they keep the interest portion as their profit. Isn't that nice? So private banks can make up money out of thin air and use it to earn the interest money that they can offer by lending it out, right? Now, I have a problem with that. I don't think it's fair that private bankers are allowed to create money out of thin air. And this is the truth. Now, listen very carefully. And I said back in 2005, had about $800 billion in circulation. That worked out to about $33,000 per head of population. Today, there is roughly $80,000 of Australian money per head of population. Now, Jason, when you've got more, you've got double the amount of money in circulation per head of population in 10 years, this is the major cause of inflation. And I will argue with any economist or any pundit who wants to come and argue the point with me, this is the major cause of inflation. So thanks to the private bankers, we have a hidden tax of 3 to 5% on every Australian every year by virtue of the CPI or, or, or inflation, if you like. Now, this is not fair. Now, here's my monetary policy, okay? If I was able to get through the legislation, we'd say, right, from now on, you stinking private banks, you're no longer allowed to create money out of thin air. You're only allowed to lend out money that people have deposited in there. Now, of course, banks are going to end up being short in being able to provide enough capital to meet the loan demand, in which case they will be able to source wholesale funding from the Reserve Bank of Australia. Now, as all current existing loans are being paid back to the banks, again, as the banks receive the principal portion of it, they wipe out that money. So what, what, what that means is that the money supply is actually going to start contracting and we know that it's going to be roughly about $90 billion a year worth of the principal that gets paid back to the bank. So I hope I'm not losing you here, but um, if I'm losing you, just, just no, tell me no, right, and I'll explain right. it. No, that's good. Now, now, that means the money supply starts shrinking. And if the money supply starts shrinking, then we have deflation, which is something that we do not want. What we want is to maintain the inflation rate at zero. We need to maintain the same amount of Australian money per head of population and keep it static. And this will help to control inflation. Now, 
So the Reserve Bank of Australia will be tasked to uh, monitor precisely how much money is being paid back to the private banks every year, how much principal, which, of course, they basically have to destroy that currency. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia then recreates that $90-odd billion, uh, hands it over into the, every year, hands it over into the Government Consolidated Revenue Fund. The government then spends that money back into circulation by building infrastructure. Now, we've actually worked out, if you, if you account for population growth, because obviously as the population grows, you need to create a little bit more money so that you maintain roughly $80,000 per head of population. The figure is roughly about $120 billion a year that the federal government will be able to spend into circulation by building infrastructure. And doing it this way, you see, the money gets back into circulation, but it's no longer tied to debt. You see, our entire current monetary system basically is a debt-based monetary system. It all has to be paid back. But if we get new money back into circulation, it's not tied to debt. It doesn't have to be paid back. It's a much more stable system. Now, $120 billion to spend every year on infrastructure. Let me tell you what we can do. For about $60 billion, you could build a 500-kilometer-hour maglev train right up the east coast of Australia, like one of these Japanese-style uh, type bullet trains. How cool is that, right? We could build this uh, water, uh, sorry, this drought-proofing infrastructure right across Australia. The Ron Pike uh, Murray-Darling plan, for example. Um, the, uh, the bring in the pipeline from the Kimberley region, bringing all that water down to the dry southern states, literally drought-proofing Australia, greening the deserts. These are just a couple of things that we could do. We could abolish toll roads. Because we buy back the toll roads, give them back to the people, buy back all of our utilities, give them back to the people at cost, right? Um, we could uh, obviously um, get rid of vehicle registration costs because the money that you pay in registration, which is supposed to go towards the roads, well, we don't need to collect that money there, A, because we're bringing in $750 billion from our tax policy, but B, the monetary policy will provide that money to invest in the roads and in infrastructure. <clears throat> and let me put this in the context for you. In the last 25 years, the federal government has invested $42 billion into road and rail. That works out to about, about $1.7, billion a year. We could spend $45 billion a year uh, in one year alone, not over 25 years, but over in one year alone on road and rail, and that still only represents a third of our annual infrastructure policy. So this monetary policy is a must. Now, when I present this legislation in Parliament, of course, the, the Liberal and Labor Party probably aren't going to go along with it. Do you know why? Because they're sold out to the bankers. And this is why they need to go. And if they do not um, vote in this legislation, they will be exposed as the banker shills that they are. Simple as that. And Australian people have had enough. Okay? So these three things, the tax and the money policy, are critical because this will absolutely revolutionise the Australian economy. You have no idea the level of prosperity and wealth and, and happiness that goes around. And you know what happens? When, when, when people have a real chance of just easily getting a job and, and earning plenty of money, not paying taxes, you know what happens? Crime rate goes down. People are happier. The divorce rate goes down. 70% of the divorce rate is associated with financial difficulties. The divorce rate goes down. So many things. It'd just be amazing. So these are the things that I stand for. These are the things that the Australian Sovereignty Party stand for. And these are the things that I'm going to be advocating with the other minor parties, that they get behind this, 
Because if we don't change these things soon, I, I fear Australia could be very soon headed for a total economic collapse, particularly because we've become so entrenched and so tied to the global system, which is so unstable right now. So these things are so important. Jason, I'll give it back to you. If you're heading for the bush soon, don't. The SSAA Shot Expo is coming with hunting gear from the world's biggest brands, the latest hunting gear and optics from Europe and the USA, and four-wheel drive accessories from Australia. The SSAA Shot Expo just keeps getting bigger. Rose Hill Racecourse, Sydney, June 25th and 26th, supported by Swarovski, Winchester and ATN Night Vision. Book online or pay on the day. Visit shotexpo.com.au. Spiker are Australia's largest brand of gun safes, shooting accessories and hunting gear and are owned and operated here in Australia. Spiker gear is now nationally recognised as the number one choice for all Australian hunters and shooters. Head to your local gun shop and check out Spiker's quality gun safes and equipment. Visit spiker.com.au and get outside. Mate, let's talk about, obviously, the, the main part of the show. It's good, it's good to hear about the ideology, core ideology, which, you know, my listeners do want to hear about. Obviously, firearms, mate. Does ASP uh, have a policy on firearms? Well, we do and we don't. Um, being a, a, a party for the people, the last sort of four or five months, as, as the Australian Sovereignty Party sort of re, uh, relaunching itself, We've gone and posted all of our policies up on the Facebook page and other forums to get the people's feedback on these policies. And, and quite often, you know, people give us their feedback and we actually go and quite often edit or modify some of our policies based on what the people say. And uh, the firearms policy is one of those that has been posted on the Facebook page. It's been tweaked a bit. We haven't quite yet uh, put it up on our website because we're still working on it. But in short, right, um, there's two aspects of it, if you like. Um, with uh, uh, rights come responsibilities, and the responsibility side of it is that any new person uh, um, trying to get into firearms, they really need to show that they're appropriately trained and qualified. See, under the current... See, I'm, I'm a firearms owner myself. I go deer hunting. Um, I own a number of firearms. I know... I, I understand the system. Right? Now, <clears throat> under the current system, at least down here in Victoria... Uh, anyone can go to the local cop shop, sit down for an hour, do their theory, uh, 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 firearm safety uh, safety course, which is only theory, and you, you pass that. And basically, as long as you've got your legitimate purpose, you, you can then go and apply for your long arms license. Now, it's possible for people who have never touched a firearm in their entire life to get their long arms license and be a firearm owner. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are a bit uncomfortable with that. So we're talking about new people to firearms here. Um, so you're talking about people, doing, you know, obviously they need to do a safety course. Is that what you're sort of saying? That's what I'm saying. I'm yeah. saying I'm saying two things, okay? First of all, any any new person to firearms, they, they, they what we're, our idea is that we have a fully funded, a government-funded two-day uh, course, which encompasses theory and pra- practical uh, handling of a range of firearms, not just long arms, but with pistols and other things as well, um, maybe even semi-autos. Um, and once they've proven themselves confident um, with, uh, uh, obviously, um, manual handling of the firearms, they then get their, their, uh, their firearms licence. Now, that's the responsibility side of it. The right side of it is I would like to see a bit of a deregulation 
of the uh, um, the category classifications. Um, I would also like to see um, other reasons added to the legitimate purpose. For example, um, home defence should be a legitimate purpose. Right? I should, I should, if I want to have a firearm for the purposes of home defence to defending my family, that should be a legitimate purpose. And I think most of you people will agree with me on that. Yeah, hundred uh, yeah. percent. So, so as a libertarian, okay. Now, now here's the thing. I, I, and I got to have a bit of a conversation about this. You know, I, I pers- personally, I personally, and this is something I'm still working with the party. But me personally, I'm actually a support concealed carry and even open carry. I'm not silly. Like, if, if suddenly we allowed open carry and everyone starts walking around carrying firearms, firearms, a lot of people in society are going to freak out, and we don't want that happening. Because the fact is, there has been a deliberate agenda, social engineering over the last 30, 40 years, to uh, brainwash people against firearms. Now, this has happened incrementally, and it's probably necessary that we um, sort of incrementally... <coughs> um, uh, enlightened society that 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 uh, firearms aren't necessarily a bad thing. Right now, um, for example, and uh, I'm sure most of your listeners would agree that uh, Port Arthur was uh, and Martin Wright very, very, very suspicious. Very suspicious. This is one thing. If I get elected, I'm going to be calling for a full coronial inquest into that. Uh, because it was based on that John Howard decided he wanted to have the uh, obviously the <coughs> tougher firearm laws and the, and the gun buyback. Now, the, the, they had the gun buyback in 96, and funnily enough, it was I think it was in 98, two years after the gun buyback, when we saw the highest rate of firearm homicide in Australia. So so clearly it didn't work, right? The gun buyback did not work. Because after the gun buyback was when we saw the highest firearm uh, homicide rate in Australia. Now, I'm a man for statistics, right? Now, wherever possible, I like to try and tell people, look, put aside your emotions and your thoughts and let's just get down to the hardcore statistics. And I always love drawing on the situation over in America. Now, you look at New York, Chicago, Detroit, places like that where they've effectively banned firearms against their Second Amendment, mind you. Uh, It's next to impossible to get firearms in these places. Now, those are the three places in America that happen to have the highest crime rates. In fact, Chicago is the... Oh, sorry. See, the Chicago or Detroit is the murder capital of the world. And they've been disarmed there. Hello? But you go to, say, for example, smaller uh, Texas... Uh, smaller cities and towns in Texas and other places like that where it's common to see people walking around with maybe an AR-15 or a shotgun or whatever. And those are the areas of the countries where you have the lowest crime rates. And there's a lot of other examples where... Um, in various counties, they've had a lot of uh, a crime and the mayor's come out and said, listen, you all need to get yourself a concealed carry, you all need to start carrying. And once they've done that, crime rates have dropped by 98% in some instances. Yeah. So we've got to look at the statistics. All of these mass shootings in America have all happened in gun-free areas. Someone who's looking to go... Um, kill a bunch of people, they're not going to go to a place where they know everyone's armed or or people might be concealed carrying. Mm. They're going to go to places where they know no one else is armed to defend themselves. It's quite simple. Daniel, I've got one question for you. This is an interesting one, actually. I want to get your thoughts on this. I'll I'll let you go in one sec, because I just thought of it when you were talking about uh, concealed carry. Now, 
I won't mention the person's name because I don't want to, you know, don't want people to think I'm against them. But there was a person who's, who's an elected representative uh, in Parliament right now that was on Facebook the other day and people were talking about concealed carry and he decided to weigh in on the conversation. Now, he basically, people were there were saying, yes, concealed carry, which I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger picture than concealed carry. It's about gun rights in general, right? But my, what he basically said was people were saying, yes, well, concealed carry. Then it got onto the conversation, which you just mentioned about the Lint Cafe. Now, this elected representative basically said, well, did say flat out that if these people that were you know, advocating for concealed carry, if they think that someone in there, in the Lint Cafe, actually had a firearm and that would have made a difference he said basically people this politician basically said people you're in fairyland if you believe someone was if someone was armed in there it would have made a lick of difference what's your thoughts on that well he's an idiot he obviously doesn't he's not living in reality all right if there were people in there concealed carry if i was in concealed carry the moment the guy came in and started pulling out gun threatening i would have put a bullet between his eye between his eyes all right End of end of end of story. Right? No harm, no foul. The only guy dead was the was the perpetrator. Right? And that's what we see happening. Statistic. Okay. Once again, let's look at the statistics. For every crime committed in America with a firearm, there's something like about eighty times as many crimes that are prevented by good people using firearms in America. Although the media will never, ever tell you those good stories. They'll only focus on the bad stories where guns were used to, 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 to commit crimes or kill people. They'll never show you the, the amount of times where good people with firearms, including concealed carry, pull them out and stop the criminal in their actions. All right? Let's look at, let's look at Switzerland. Now... Yep. They've got the national service there, and, and by law, and I, and I know because I've, uh, I've talked to a bunch of them, by law, you actually have to keep an assault rifle hidden in your house. You actually get in trouble if you don't have an assault rifle hidden in your house. It's the exact opposite of gun control. It couldn't be anything further opposite from, from gun control in Switzerland. Now, guess what? Switzerland has the lowest crime rate of any country in the world, and they're armed to the teeth. Now, here's what needs to happen here in Australia, because <clears throat> to understand my firearms policy, it, it's, it's a bit difficult to take it in isolation. You need to understand it in the context of the other policies that we stand for. For example, the tax policy and what that will do to um, in, in, improve prosperity and wealth, and, and, and that will naturally help to reduce a lot of crime rate, right? Um, for example, our policy on decriminalising um, uh, hemp and marijuana, for example. Now, um, think about a lot of people who currently go and commit uh, crimes with firearms. They might be junkies um, trying to still, you know, rob a, rob a local service station, get a couple hundred bucks. They're trying to get their, their next hit, you know. Um, but if, if, the, if you decriminalise the drugs, they become uh, less expensive. That doesn't mean more people use them. The statistics do not show that. The statistics show when you decriminalise uh, uh, drugs, in fact, less people end up using it because it's like, hey, you're free to use them if you like. You're an idiot if you do, but you're free to do it. Right? Now, the other thing is we've got this policy, and it's called the um, um, uh, Citizen Service Scheme. Now, basically, it's... You could call it um, a form of non-compulsory national service. It's a very sort of highly incentivised form of national service. The idea is that school leavers go and do it for one year, 
and you've got three different options. You can go and do the military, you can go and do the environment core, where you spend one year learning things like horticulture, learning how to con uh, control invasive uh, pests, uh, flora and fauna, all those things. Um, and you've got uh, another core, which is kind of like a combination between the state emergency services and the fire services. Right? <clears throat> now, most people will go to the military one. Now, what that means is you're going to have you know, at least 100, 120,000 uh, um, people who, who come out of the military every year, uh, basically in a sense of kind of like reservists, but every year, and they would have had obviously had extensive uh, uh, training with firearms. Now, what happens over a period of time when you've got this national service type scheme, again, not compulsory, just highly incentivised. People who do it will get a $50,000 grant to use towards uh, tertiary education or to buy tools of trade if you want to do, go and do a trade or to put it as a deposit on the house. Um, now, uh, what happens after a period of time is that society's attitudes towards firearms start to change again. Right? Um, and once that starts to happen, people will probably start to become a little bit more comfortable with the idea that good, honest, well-trained citizens may be, for example, concealed carry, walking around. And if this is a situation, let, let's, let's, let's just play hypothetically here. Right? Let's say one in a hundred people who are highly trained, they're vetted, they don't have psychological problems, they're just good, law-abiding, honest citizens who have been trained, who have been vetted, they don't have a criminal record, all that sort of stuff, and they might be concealed carry. Right. Let's, say, let's say it's one in 100. Now, they're walking around in the shops or whatever, and you don't know who they are. But here's the thing. If a criminal was thinking about going in and robbing a bank or you know, uh, robbing, doing things that criminals do, they're going to think twice about it because they're going to think, oh, gee, maybe that guy over there wearing that jacket, he might be concealed carrying. Is it worth going to risk my life just to go and steal a few hundred dollars? I don't think so. And this is exactly why we see over in America and other places where you've got concealed carry, crime rate goes down. Now, the reason why the establishment, the globalists, are doing everything they can to demonise firearms, and people need to understand a little bit of history here. The first thing that Hitler did when he got into power, he disarmed the private citizens. The first thing... Chairman Mao did, or Stalin did, all these tyrants and dictators, they disarmed the population. Hugo Chavez over in um, Venezuela uh, has uh, uh, disarmed, disarmed the population four years ago. Whenever you see governments vying to disarm the population, it almost always goes hand in hand with those governments becoming far more tyrannical and dictatorial. Warning, warning, warning. A tyrannical, dictatorial government that's serving the best interests of the bankers and multinationals and not the people, they do not want the population to be armed. If the population's armed, they can't very well get away with using the military and the police to suppress their own people. And if people think it can't happen here in Australia, wake up. Wake up. Go back in time 50 years ago and have a look at society in Australia then compared to now. Let me give you an example. All right? You remember Black Saturday, the bushfires? Yep, yep. And what was it, 130 people died, whatever it was. There's a guy up in King Lake. He's got, he's got a big property, and um, he, he cuts down a few trees around his house to try and stop his, his, his house from burning down, right? Trying to save his house. He's the only guy in the whole area who saved his house. 
They had a stinking rotten local council coming in, upholding this uh, dictatorial United Nations Agenda 21 business, came in and fined this guy $100,000. Because you're not allowed to cut down a tree on your own rural property unless you've got the stinking government's permission to do so. Now, if you went back 50 years ago and you told someone in Australia, oh, if you cut down a tree on your own rural property, the government's going to fine you $100,000, you would have been laughed out of town. You would have been told to go over to Soviet Russia. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but now we accept it as normal because our rights and our freedoms have been incrementally stripped away from us. And this is why, because it doesn't happen overnight, you see, it happens step by step. It happens incrementally. This is why it's the old throw the uh, frog into a boiling pot business. You're just going to jump out straight away. But you turn up the heat slowly and you slowly boil to death. We are being boiled to death because our rights and our freedoms have incrementally, over a period of time, been stripped away from us. And if people don't wake up and realise what's going on and take action, we're going to wake up in a nation and we're going to realise that we've become slaves in our own nation. Mm. This is serious. This is serious. Enough is enough. No more big brother government. No more nanny state. Let's get our rights and our freedoms back. The Australian people need to reject the Liberal, Labor and Greens party of this election. They need to get behind minor parties and independents like myself we're going to uphold freedom, uphold justice, reverse this trend towards tyranny. And this absolutely plays into this whole firearms debate. Because once again, the more we see governments moving towards tyranny and taking away our rights and freedoms, the more they're looking at disarming the population. Of course, people need to learn history. You go, you go back 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, slaves were not allowed to be armed. They were not allowed to carry weapons. Slaves. They're trying to turn us into slaves. Freedom has always, not always, but quite often been won and been kept by the sword. Mm. Now, I'm not advocating violence. I'm only advocating that we all stand up and say enough is enough. We need to stand up and protect what rights and freedoms we have left. And if possible, we need to start reversing this trend. Do you hunt deer and want to learn the correct techniques for a quality wall mount and premium eating venison? SSAA Sydney Branch provides hunter education courses to help you become a better hunter and to utilise harvested game in the most effective way possible. Course content includes gunning, butchering and caping from experienced hands-on instructors using locally harvested deer. There is no gear required and also includes a barbecue lunch. Courses are held every first Sunday of each month with an 8am sign-in for a 9am start. Course running time is approximately 6 hours and the venue is Silverdale Rifle Range. Cost is $50 per person, so call Andy Mallon at Silverdale Rifle Range on 02-4653-1440 or visit SSAAsydney.net. Mate, I'm just going to throw up, I just want to go on a couple more things because I think you, you're, uh, you'd like some of this stuff. I just want to get you sort of yeah, yes or no and a sort of a reason behind it if you can. So we'll start off, just so people, again, my listeners would like to know 
sort of where ASP stands or, or yourself personally on some of these things as well. So let's talk about registration. Yes or no? Very good, very bad. Get rid of it or keep it? Well, mate, two words for you. New Zealand. Yep, and I think yep. you know where that's going. Absolutely, <laughs> yep, yep. No, no, uh, no so registration abolished back in the mid-1980s. Complete waste of money. You can go buy, get a license, do your, do your course, get a license, and, uh, and go and buy your firearms over the counter. And they even still send them through the mail over there. So, Well, that's right. And, and, um, and again, once again, we've got, we've got to just look at the statistics. You know? what, is the, what is the registration done here in Australia? Has it, has it proven uh, uh, to help? No, it hasn't. I, don't, I have not seen evidence that it's, that it's helped here. So all it does, and this is the, this is the worry I have, um, because certain public officials over in America have come out and public, they've actually said, they've admitted that registration will lead to confiscation. Mm. And that's the concern. Yep. That is the concern. Because we know in Canada they abolished it too for long arms back in 2014. Yeah, just another reason to get rid of it. The Harper government said they'd get rid of it, and that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right, next one. Now, I know you talked about genuine reasons. Now, I'm, I understand where you were coming from before. Uh, I'm all for getting rid of genuine reasons. There's so many hunting, target shootings, the, the, you know, obviously no, not one for self-defense. I mean, if we had to have genuine reasons, then, of course, I would support you know, one that you know, improves one that has self-defense in it, obviously. But I would say getting rid of it, my philosophy is obviously, as you said, some sort of safety course. You know, you're proficient with firearms around yourself and other people uh, and a license. That's about as far as I would go. Um, so what's, what's your thoughts on this genuine reason? Just cutting the lot. I mean, freedom, you know, sovereignty, liberty. Shouldn't we be able to own the firearms we want to own? I totally agree. In fact, I totally agree. So um, once again... Um, so, sorry, sorry, Dan, probably two Look, questions there, actually, probably two questions. One, genuine reasons, and number two, I mean, New Zealand have, you know, uh, pump shotguns, semi-automatic firearms, autoloaders, whatever you would like to call them, you know, no problem whatsoever, no massacre since 1997. Uh, you know, are we, I mean, are we less trustworthy than our New Zealand compadres over there? Look, once again, I think a lot of this plays into the fact that um, society has been engineered uh, and this is admitted. This is admitted. Very, you know, whether it's the Fabian Society or other groups, they admit that they have engaged in social engineering. And part of this social engineering over a period of time is they have tried to brainwash society against uh, firearms. Um, and so um, we, we need to look at how we can start reversing that. And um, and, uh, and there's a number of uh, a number of ways. But um, but uh, look, I'm, I'm a libertarian. Okay, I'm a libertarian. I should not have to give a legitimate reason or anything else uh, to, to the guy. Look, look, the fact is, if I really had it in my heart that I wanted to go kill someone, I wouldn't go and shoot them. There is any number of ways that I could do it. I mean, I drive a, a, a deadly weapon every single day for crying out loud, right? Um, you know, let's look at... Let's, you, you go and look over in, uh, in Britain, London... Okay, and they've been all been disarmed there, but they still have a very high murder rate. And what are people using? They're using baseball bats and butcher knives. So if someone's got intent in their heart to go and murder someone, having a gun or not access to a gun ain't going to make a difference to them, right? Now, for those few people out in society who still who, who do want to go and do harm, I want to have a firearm to be able to defend myself and my family. And not only my family, if I was concealed carrying out out, out in the street 
and I saw some crime being committed, I would very likely be able to prevent that crime. In fact, and this just goes into statistics, if people are concealed carrying, a lot of people just don't go and commit the crime in the first place because they think, well, it's not worth it. Mm, true. Right? So, um, look, that's my own personal views. Um, we're still working together as a political party on it, but once again, um, it's, it, if someone goes to the Australian Sovereign Party reads our policies, you can't really read one of the, a single policy in isolation from the rest of them. All of our policies work uh, synergistically and holistically together, and some of the individual policies actually wouldn't really make sense outside of the context of, for example, the tax and monetary policy. Uh, because there's going to be a lot of changes to the economy, to society, to freedom, it's just the way, general way people think, I mean, just the education policy, right? Encouraging people, once again, at schools, encouraging uh, uh, patriotism, encouraging love of country and, and all these things. Um, even the citizen service scheme, right? Now, I've been through the military myself. Now, when I went through basic training, I had in my platoon, there was one guy from Turkey, there was two people from Vietnam, uh, we had, I think we also had two people from India. And you know what? In basic training, when you're there training to, to have each other's back, to look after each other, teamwork, skin colour, race, religion, it all goes out the window. I'm telling you, it all goes out the window, including this, this Turkish guy who was uh, a Muslim. But I'm telling you, you don't, all that goes out the window. You, all you are are just Aussies, teammates. Uh, diggers, troopers, looking after each other. You've got each other's back. You have this mateship. And this is why it's so important if you have this kind of, uh, if you go and read our citizen service scheme, one of the main reasons for, for it, apart from obviously bolstering our defence capabilities and other things, is actually to start bringing about a positive change in society. Young people who go through this, they go instead of having you know young people that come out of school and they go and they have this gang mentality with different ethnic groups and whatever. No, 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 no. No, everyone goes and does this, and you learn to be teammates. You learn that we're all Aussies. We're all looking after each other. And it has a big change in people's heart. And, of course, they learn some discipline. They learn some respect. They learn some honour. All these are all good things, right? And people who go through this sort of a, a, an environment are, are less likely to come out being someone who's going to, you know, commit crime or, or cause harm out in society. You're going to have a much more of a community orientated spirit, and that's what this is about. And so, so once again, you take all these things into context, and it starts to make a lot more sense that we have complete deregulation of the uh, uh, firearms laws. Yep. Speaking just a couple more quick ones now, especially New South Wales, you know, in the police infinite wisdom, you probably know about this one appearance laws. I mean, I think the, the Ruger precision is uh, illegal in New South Wales, as is the Warwick's firearms WFA won the straight pool. Um, New South Wales, we can't have the Rossi circuit judge, which is a cylindrical style, uh, a long arm. Uh, you know, what about these appearance laws? I mean, completely ridiculous or what? In other, words, you, in other words, you can't own these firearms because they look, Daniel, quote-unquote, military. They look scary. They're black. They have a shroud over the barrel. They've got a pistol grip. I mean, this is what we're talking about at the moment. Yeah, no, nah, just, just, just stupid. Just stupid. Look, the people out in society, they're, they're, they're well and truly happy to see, you know, police walking around with firearms and, and, and uh, other people. And do and you know what? Police commit crimes too. 
Police commit crimes too. It, it, once again, so much of this, it just comes down to perception and education. But these, these sorts of laws are just ridiculous. Look, I own one of my phone, I've got a, um, a Remington 7600. Um, so it's, it's, it's a 30-odd-6 um, um, pup. Right? And, and uh, people, some people think that looks rather military. You know, it's, it's black. Um, it's, I've got the scope on it. Um, and, uh, um, but, you know, it's just, it's, it's just silly. It's just really, really, really silly laws. Why create laws when there's no problems? There's yeah. no problems, right? Um, at the moment, people aren't walking around with these kinds of long arms in public anyway. So they're not scaring people. They carry, they, they put them in their bags or whatever in there, you know, and that you wouldn't know someone's driving down the street, he's got these firearms in the back because he's driving, he's going out doing some hunting. You wouldn't know. The average person wouldn't know. They, they don't see him. Right, so to have laws like it's just silly. It's just just nonsense. Um, another one. Uh, I got a lot of airsoft listeners. So airsoft is like paintball, where you shoot those little plastic balls at each other. You know, many, many, many countries around the world play this as classified as a toy, a sport. People enjoy it. Very, very similar to to paintball. Yet, guess what, Daniel? You know, banned in Australia. Com- again, completely ridiculous. Would you guys advocate? Are you guys supporters of airsoft and, and would advocate for people that enjoy airsoft to enjoy their sport? And to legalise that in Australia? Well, absolutely, absolutely. Look, I, I own a, um, a compound bow, and if you've had experience with a compound bow, you'll know that they're far more deadly than any any airsoft. Right? Yet, I can get a compound bow without uh, any licence. Anyone can go out and get a compound bow right now. You don't need a licence for it. You, yeah, you need a, uh, a licence uh, or a permit to get a, um, a crossbow, but a compound bow, you don't. Right, and the one I've got, seventy pounder, you can kill a full size uh, samba deer at fifty meters with that thing. Right, um, so yeah, no, nah, just just silly, just nonsense. Um, I just think that the way I would do it is you just get everyone to do a, a government funded two day intensive firearm training course. You learn the theory, you learn the practical, hands on experience, including the full range. I'm talking airsoft, I'm talking uh, bolt action, I'm talking lever pump, I'm talking semi auto, I'm talking uh, pistols, everything. Get, get experience with all of them, show yourself to be confident, and this end, you should be legally allowed to purchase and uh, own and use any of those firearms. Mm, very good, mate. Okay, finish off just last couple of questions. Uh, you know, how can you, if you were elected, how can you advocate for my interests in Parliament? Uh, you know, and how can you advocate for firearms owners in, in, in your area and for me in general and people across this country? Well, there's a number of things. Again, we've got to consider the reality. Um, we have to wait and see after this election just how many miners and independents get elected because we know that the duopoly Liberal Labor they're not really going to budge on this. They've got an agenda, okay? Um, and uh, so it's up to us to do a number of things. One of the first things we can do is just have to educate the Australian people, right? Um, give me a bit of uh, time on uh, national media and I will go into the statistics about firearms and I'll try and, um, if you like, brain... Well, they use brainwashing against us. I'll try and educate the Australian people back to be more in favour of firearms. And, and so part of this is about getting the Australian people themselves on side, okay? Yeah. Um, Legislation-wise, obviously, I'm going to be doing everything I can um, to uh, improve our rights. Um, and I think the only really way we can do that is if, if all the other miners and independents work together as a block 
um, I think it's possible that we can uh, see some positive change. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and this is your spiel time. You know, if you want people to vote for you, I mean, why should they vote for ASP at this next election? Why should they? Okay, well, look, again, we're running as independents, but uh, you are effectively voting ASP, if you like. Um, But uh, um, you've you've heard everything that I've said here. The main reason people should get behind me and vote for me, look, your listeners, they're they're obviously all firearms fans. I'm a firearm fan. but uh, but really, we need to we need to look at a much bigger picture, and that's again uh, on the economy. Okay, it's it's all very well and good having your gun rights, but if you don't have a job, if you don't have money in your pocket, what what good is it? You know, um, so people need to get behind me and our other candidates because of these reasons. Right, we have demonstrated the very best economic plan and policy to resurrect Australia as a truly great country. Uh, and that's what this election should really be all about. And I and I would ask if any of your listeners or supporters are out east of Melbourne, please get in contact with me. I need your help. All right? I've got uh, in this election, I've got 27 polling booths. I need to man. I need volunteers to help hand out how to vote cards. So I'm appealing to anyone out here who wants to come in and help out a gun-loving, freedom, libertarian-minded uh, constitutionalist as myself someone with amazing economic plans that can help to uh, liberate your own hip pocket. <laughs> so please, come and help me out. My website, by the way, um, obviously we've got the Australian Sovereignty Party website, but my independent candidate website is danielhuppert.com.au. So that's D-A-N-I-E-L-H-U-P-P-E-R-T.com.au. Please check it out. There's a contact form on there. Please get in contact with me if you think you can volunteer, help out, or even donate. Uh, would be greatly appreciated. I'm here fighting for you guys, so I need you to be. I need you to back me, Jason. Jason, do you, can you spare one more quick minute? Sure, I can absolutely. I forgot to mention one of my obviously main policies running as an independent here, and I've been going around talking to people on the streets about this, and people are loving it. Um, I'm saying if I get elected as uh, the candidate for the seat of Aston, um, I'm going to create a highly encrypted smartphone application. And for those who don't have smartphones, they'll be able to do it on a computer. And when I'm in Canberra voting on legislation, uh, you'll, you'll be all the registered voters in the electorate of Aston will be given a login detail to the smartphone app. Now, uh, what it'll do, you, you log into the smartphone app and it'll say, okay, this is the legislation. It means gobbledygook to most people. But then it'll say, so this is what it's about. And then it'll say, this is my personal view on it, and I hope that people would respect my uh, intelligent, educated view on that legislation. Uh, But then it'll have a button, yes or no, okay? And if 51% of my electorate vote yes, well, that's why I vote in Parliament. And this is what the representatives are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be representing the will of their electorate. And this is why we need to get rid of the Liberal and Labor Party who are are bound to vote along party lines, often against the will of their own electorate. So I've been telling people about this, and people are loving it. For people that actually think that they actually have a real say and a chance to direct their representative and how they should uh, vote in Parliament, this is what... Of course, I've got my own views on issues, and I will express my views to my electorate, and it's up to me to reason with my electorate and convince them why they should support various legislation. That's my job, but it's up to them to choose. They vote yes or no. And if they vote yes, then that's the way I vote in Parliament. 
Very good, mate. Well, as I said, Daniel Huppert joins me here representing ASP and running as an independent at the next 2016 federal election. Daniel, as always, pleasure. Appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.